You're listening to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. This is episode 115, The Essential Abolitionist, an interview with John Vanek. Welcome to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. My name is Dave Stahoviak. And my name is Sandy Morgan. And this is the show where we empower you to study the issues, be a voice, and make a difference in ending human trafficking. Sandy, glad to be back with you again. And one of the great pleasures we get uh, in hosting this show is to be able to talk with many of our friends. And there are uh, many friends in the Global Center for Women and Justice community, not only here locally, but really across the country. And we have one of our friends with us today uh, who is just about to release a new book. And uh, Sandy, you've been a part of the book, right? Well, I got to be a contributor, and I'm I'm very excited to have this particular guest because we actually worked together for a few years when I was the administrator of the Orange County Human Trafficking Task Force. He was the administrator of the San Jose um, human Trafficking Task Force. So oh, Fabulous, fabulous. Well, let's formally introduce John Vanek. He is a speaker, consultant, and author, and a nationally recognized authority on human trafficking and the response to modern slavery. John managed the San Jose Police Department Human Trafficking Task Force from 2006 to 2011. His knowledge on the collaborative response to human trafficking and task force operations have been utilized by the U.S. Department of Justice, the Office of the United States Attorneys, California's Office of the Attorney General, California Post, the California District Attorneys Association, the National Law Enforcement Training Network, the Not For Sale Campaign, Police One, the Freedom Network Training Institute, and other governmental and private organizations. John retired from the San Jose Police Department in the rank of lieutenant, holds a Master's of Arts in Leadership from St. Mary's College of California, and is the author of the forthcoming book, which is what our conversation is going to be centered around today, Sandy, The Essential Abolitionist, What You Need to Know About Human Trafficking and Modern Slavery, to be released here in January 2016. John, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to, to be with you guys this morning, Dave and Sandy. Well, I'm excited to uh, learn a little bit more about how you decided to write a book. And can you give us a, a little bit of, um, of the history of that? Uh, sure. Um, so, uh, like you, you know, I've been involved in this work for, for quite a while. And, and on occasion, people would say, hey, John, you should write a book about what you're doing. But, um, but frankly, my, my personal story is not, um, you know, not as exciting or as compelling as, as a lot of people might think doing this work. But um, I've had the opportunity to work with so many people in such a variety of ways over the last decade that um, I've really had the opportunity to learn about the complexities of trafficking and, more importantly, I believe, the complexities of the response to trafficking. So ultimately, I, I started thinking about different possibilities, and there is no single resource that you can go to that will help people in a, in, a, um, in a fairly basic way understand exactly what human trafficking is and exactly what the challenges are that confront us in, in responding to trafficking. And then there's certainly no resource that, 
that kind of gives people the understanding of the challenges involved by the people who are responding to trafficking. And there's also a lot of, uh, of myths and misconceptions that float around in social media and other places about human trafficking. And so that was sort of the impetus for the book. And so I, I realized that whether I'm speaking before uh, lay people or um, students, professionals in law enforcement, and, and even those already involved in the response to trafficking, the same questions get asked over and over and over again. So I, I literally kind of one night came up with this idea and I started making a list of all the questions that people ask. And then I took that list and I, I ran it by some colleagues and I said, hey, here's kind of what I'm thinking about this book and what do you think of the idea? And, and the response was, was really positive. It was like, wow, this is kind of a cool idea. And so that's really how the whole thing started. Well, when I when I listen to you, I'm imagining that this book is going to be one of those I have to put in um, a a briefcase that has wheels on it because it must be 500 pages. <laughs> well, actually, the um, it's going to end up being uh, it's going to be printed as as a paperback, um, a six by nine inches. Well, you know, it's kind of a standard trade paperback size, and it'll it's going to be right around 240 to 250 pages. It's you know for the writers out there, it's about 56,000 words. So um, it's it's extensive, but at the same time, um, I really wanted it to be the sort of book that somebody could pick up, and if they only had five or ten minutes to read at any one point in time, they could go to one of these questions and, and really drill down on, on the topics. And um, I, originally, I had a list of, of about a hundred questions. And uh, as, as I went through and started refining the list and, and working with um, contributors and formatting the book in terms of chapters, it ultimately there's about, um, there, there's a little over 70 questions. And uh, so, but every, every question is really designed to, everything is posed as a question, you know, what is human trafficking? What are some of the myths and misconceptions related to human trafficking? And I try to go in and quickly distill the topic and help people um, bring some clarity to a lot of the confusion and complexity. So, um, so that's the intent. And uh, the people who have seen the the book um, in its uh, as it as it's getting close to printing, um, I've been very fortunate to see some very positive. Uh, comments. So, so I'm excited to have it actually come out. So give us an idea of how did you answer the question about myths and misconceptions? <laughs> well, there's actually a whole chapter on myths and misconceptions because um, I think one of the greatest uh, challenges we have when we talk about human trafficking is that there, there's a lot of misinformation um, that, that's out there. And, and it really gets pushed around a lot on social media. And, and it's great that, that there's so many passionate people that want to learn uh, about human trafficking. They want to get involved in the response or, or at least be knowledgeable about it. But it doesn't help when very complex issues are thrown out um, in a little meme on, on social media or, or they're, they're crunched down to just you know, a, a couple, uh, you know, 140 characters or something like that. So um, among the myths and misconceptions that I examine, my favorite one is, and the first question in the chapter is, uh, you know, the idea is, is the Super Bowl the single largest incident of human trafficking? Oh my goodness, John, please tell us the answer to that one now. Don't make me wait and buy the book. 
Well, so so the story is very simple. It's a great it's a great example of a myth and the power of myth. So in the lead up to the 2011 Super Bowl, which was in Arlington, Virginia, Greg Abbott, who is currently the governor of Texas, but at the time he was the state attorney general, and he was quoted in several papers and uh, and making that comment that uh, effectively that it's well known that the Super Bowl is. Uh, the single largest incident of human trafficking in the country. And it, like any good myth, it took off like wildfire. And particularly um, around Super Bowl time, you know, we're coming, we're, we're, we're getting near Super Bowl again, you tend to see a lot of people bringing this up. And the fact is, is that there is just no empirical evidence to support that claim. Uh, and the uh, Arizona State University has done a very good study where they, they've examined um, these issues of commercial sex trafficking in and around the Super Bowl uh, area in the lead up to the Super Bowl for the last two years. I believe they're going to be in Santa Clara uh, working again and analyzing the information that comes out from task force operations in the Bay Area. But it's very clear. They say, look, we, we just don't have enough information to confirm that this is true. So, so the interesting thing is when, when I try and help people understand this, um, I get a lot of pushback. I and, know. And there are, there are people, including survivors of trafficking, that say, well, you know, I got trafficked into the Super Bowl area during the Super Bowl. And I believe that as abolitionists, or, and I use the term abolitionists to refer to anybody that is opposed to slavery. Nothing more, nothing less. But as, as, as abolitionists, it, we must have the best information and be as transparent as possible. One, to bring respect to the victims and survivors of trafficking. Two, to bring respect to the work that anti-trafficking professionals are doing all the time. And three, and this is a point that I was recently trying to make with um, a, a, uh, uh, one of the leaders of a non-governmental organization, that, you know, if you're trying to raise funding for your organization, we need to be honest and transparent about the information we have. And if we have it, great. If we don't have it, let's just say we don't have it yet and continue to do the research. Wow. So when you, when you said that we don't have evidence to support that this exists, um, the pushback I get back is, well, can you prove that it doesn't exist? Well, that's a good point. And, you know, particularly, I'm sure you experience the same thing. People will say, well, you know, I was a victim or I'm a survivor of, of human trafficking. And, you know, my trafficker you know, took me to the Super Bowl. And I, I think that we need to look at the difference between uh, anecdotal evidence or even, uh, you know, some solid research. But it's important to come back and say, you know, research, any type of research has to have its own set of criteria, its own set of rigor. And there just hasn't been enough research into this topic of the Super Bowl. I, I mean, there's some simple things that, that, that we should do. Most of the information that comes out around the Super Bowl and, and the results of anti-trafficking efforts around Super Bowl is a result of community organizations, lo local and federal law enforcement coming together typically for around 10 days, kind of starting the weekend before the Super Bowl and going through the night of the Super Bowl. And, and they're doing whatever they're doing. And then typically there's a press release, hey, X number of victims were identified or you know, um, passed on to victim services providers for assistance and people were arrested and this and that. Well, 
we should take the exact same number of law enforcement professionals from those same agencies and the exact name pe- number of people that are involved in, in the broader task force operations over that 10 days of Super Bowl, let's say, and we should have them do the exact same amount and level and aggressiveness of work for another 10-day period in that same city. I mean, that's just basic research criteria, right? Right, right. Very good. And and the the other complications that I've had with some of my law enforcement colleagues has been um, the complication that hundreds and maybe thousands of um, abolitionists come with the intention of walking through the city, trying to identify victims, um, trying to engage. And so that becomes another element that they have to juggle. And then um, some of my nonprofit leaders question the amount of resources directed at a 10-day period and what the, the, um, the same resources might affect if you directed them in one city for an entire year. Well, that's a very good point. And, and that I begin, I think that's where we begin to speak to the complexity of the response to trafficking. And, you know, one of the things I, I, I enjoy so much about this work is there's just so many passionate people that really want to make a difference. Um, but, you know, I mean, it, it took many of us, took me many years to, to begin to recognize these complexities that we don't know what we don't know. And only when others begin to help us understand these complexities do we have the chance of becoming more effective. Um, the, the report that I mentioned from Arizona State University, their School of Social Work, um, you know, they point out that during uh, the lead up and around Super Bowl, um, there's an increase in activity amongst you know, the people you're talking about, dedicated um, citizens and, and law enforcement. And so just the activity of, of being in a city and putting forth effort um, over uh, 10 days, you know, that in and of itself is going to raise the, the likelihood of identifying victims of trafficking. So it's, it's also a, a little problematic when you go put in a bunch of effort and you say, okay, look what we found, um, and we think it's tied to the Super Bowl in this case. And, and there are many other types of examples. It's not just the Super Bowl we're talking and about, it's, really. It's really tied to the number of people who are out there looking. Exactly. Wow. Exactly. And, and, and I think, you know, you and I both uh, know this and, and Dave, and, and I'm sure many of your listeners uh, realize that one of the, the key things about the response to trafficking is that we find what we look for. Mm. And if we don't stop and ask ourselves, well, okay, if we're looking for, for one thing, are we going to be missing something else? So then what might we be missing? And I think a good example of that is simply the, the difference between looking for um, human trafficking related to the commercial sex trade versus human trafficking related to la- labor and involuntary servitude and slavery. So, um, so yeah. let's, let's kind of transition into that discussion because um, getting people to talk knowledgeably about labor trafficking or to engage with any level of passion um, I've had people say to me, well, at least it's not as bad as sex trafficking. 
and they, they have a place to sleep and they get food. And I'm like, yeah, so you want to be a slave because you have a place to sleep? You may not. Yeah. So tell me how you respond to that. <laughs> well, um, I actually kind of explore that that topic a little bit in the book also, because, um, you know, the questions that you and I are going to share with each other this morning or have shared, these are the questions that everybody asks. Hmm. And, and regardless if they are law enforcement, just getting involved in trafficking, law enforcement that have been involved, service providers, et cetera, everybody asks the same questions. And, and I think that it can take a long time to have this discussion, um, probably more time than we have this morning, but we, we do need, I believe to understand that, Victimization um, occurs on on many different levels, and in my work as a police officer, of course, I came into contact with many victims of crime, many different types of crime. And for two years of my career, I spent uh, two years full time investigating uh, only sexual assaults. So I spent a lot of time, you know, in that arena. And I, for one, I, I will, I am never going to try and and place my feelings of what it's like to be a victim. I believe that every victim has a different experience. Every victim is certainly a different person. And for any outsider, I think it's exceptionally difficult to try and somehow quantify somebody else's victimization. And, and uh, one, of, one of your close friends, Shima Hall, um, who uh, for, read, or for listeners who aren't familiar with Shima, um, who was... Um, a domestic servant at a very young age for many years in Southern California. Uh, I, I allude to her story and, and similar stories um, where people have been victimized for many, many, many years. And I don't, I don't know, I'm not comfortable saying just because you were engaged and you were exploited in the commercial sex trade, that that somehow makes your victimization more or less heinous than somebody who may have been in servitude for half of their lifetime. Mm. Wow. Well, and we'll put a, a link to an interview with um, Shima in our show notes here because uh, you re- I think she has driven my, uh, my passion to raise awareness to the, the crime of labor trafficking because it is a crime against um, a person. It's a human rights violation and uh, it, it assaults someone's dignity as an individual. Um, created in the image of God. And so I want to respect and honor victims across the board and do whatever I can to reduce their victimization, to find victims, and to create a world where this won't happen anymore. And, so, and that's, all we're, that's all we should all be looking for, right, is to, is to try and identify victims and, and help them get out of, of slavery, um, of because ultimately, and there's a technical term, technical definition to slavery, um, but we also use the, the term slavery as a general term, uh, a synonym sometimes for human trafficking to help people understand the severity of, of what we're talking about. Um, but one of the cases that I do go into a little bit of detail on was one of the earliest um, cases prosecuted in the United States um, after the passage of the Trafficking Victims Protection Act in 2000. Um, was the case involving um, a husband and wife. They were both medical doctors in Wisconsin, uh, the Kalimlans. And they brought a young lady from the Philippines to work as their domestic servant. Um, And she was about 17 or 18 when they brought her to the United States. And then she was enslaved by them 
for about another 18 years before she was mm-hmm. identified. So literally half of her life was spent in slavery in the United States. And I, that's, that's something I think that it's difficult for, for me, certainly, um, to kind of wrap my head around that somebody could be exploited for so long. And that's why I think it's, it's we just need to be respectful when we start um, placing our own sense of victimization on different individuals. Because, we, and also we always, we don't always know the actual circumstances of their enslavement. Many people who are, we, who we, we sort of identify as a slavery, uh, or excuse me, as a victim of, of labor trafficking. Quite often, there's also also sexual abuse and other types of abuse that are involved in those cases that we never really hear about. Exactly. Well, um, I, I'm looking at our time, and I want to move on to another aspect of your book that I find fascinating. You included 16 nationally recognized experts involved in the response to human trafficking. So tell me how that came about, and how does that uniquely position this book? So when I originally started on my list of questions, and, and, and these were questions, as I said, that people ask all the time. So I, I, I could respond to any uh, or most of these questions, ultimately, um, in some level of knowledge. But one of the broader aspects of the response to trafficking is collaboration. And, and if you, you have to be able to collaborate to do this work well, no matter what your role and ultimately, I decided to begin to invite contributors. But there was really sort of a logistical problem there that I wasn't, that I was a little fearful about because, um, you know, I didn't only want to have two or three or four contributors. I thought, frankly, that, that would look kind of funny if you open the book like, well, how come there's only three contributors when this is such a complex issue? But to my everlasting gratitude, every single contributor that I reached out to to help enthusiastically jumped on board. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and, you've and got I a lot like of friends. You. I'm sorry. You've got a lot of friends. Uh, well, I do. And, and, and we, we really do as a community work to take care of each other for the most part. And so um, I was very fortunate and that I had a list and, and I, I broke down the list by, okay, I think this person would be excellent to talk about this, per, this topic or bring this perspective and so I, I think it makes the book much, much stronger because it, it brings, um, there's, there's 16 contributors. There's actually 15 contributions. Uh, the contribution from the Polaris Project was actually written by um, two of their staff members. Uh, but, it, but you hear the voice in this case of Sarah and, and uh, Nicole. When you read the piece that you contributed, we, we hear your voice. We hear... Um, your passion and perspective and and the voices of the contributors really come through and and that was also kind of a, a, a logistical challenge if you will because when when we were looking at the when the uh, contributions started coming in my editor and I are looking at them it's like okay you know sometimes we need to tweak them a little bit but we don't want to lose the voice of the people and, and I think ultimately we were able to achieve that so um, I'm sure you invited a survivor um, contribution I did. And um, Shamir McKenzie, who I happened to meet, we were at a, both speaking at a conference um, about a year ago, and um, delightful, delightful young woman. And uh, she's a, a survivor of sex trafficking. And 
but the thing that impressed me so much about Shamir when we met is her, her passion and her, her, her joy for life. Um, she was a short story, her short story of victimization. She was actually a college student at the time and um, was befriended by a man who um, started dating her and then ultimately exploited her. And um, she now uh, works for an organization called Sungate Foundation doing anti-trafficking work. Um, but, but if you were to meet, if you didn't know Shamir and you were to meet Shamir, um, you would just think, wow, this, this young lady has just got it all together. And she does. And we, I think often we tend to think of trafficking victims as, as being, you know, weak or, or very, um, fragile, fragile. Thank you yeah. very much. And, and so you, you get a sense, I think, in her contribution of the strength that she has and her, how articulate it is. And, and, it, and it goes to prove that anybody, any of us could become a victim of human trafficking if we had the wants and needs that our trafficker could appear to provide or if we were unable to, to um, resist the force, fraud, or coercion that traffickers use to compel us to do whatever it is they want us to do. So I was very excited that Shamir um, agreed to to be one of the contributors. Well, I'm excited to get my copy of the book so I can read that part. I'm going to read the whole thing, of course. Okay. <laughs> um, so uh, kind of looking towards what you expect now that the book is done, it's in the last throes of publishing, it's going to be available um, in the new year. What do you want the community response to this resource to be what what is your what is your hope and expectation that this book will um, generate? My hope is that the book will be accepted and appreciated by by every potential element that's an, interested in human trafficking or involved in the response to trafficking. Uh, I really wrote the book as, as a guide to be helpful to everybody, whether, whether you are a college student or a high school student and you've just heard the term human trafficking and you've maybe just seen a movie or a TV show and you want to learn more, that when you, when you read my book that you'll say, wow, this really helped me understand um, not only kind of the, some of the basic things about trafficking, but some of the more nuanced and complex areas of trafficking and the response. And I would like to have that response come from law enforcement officers, from victim services providers, from uh, academia. I mean, it's, it's not written as an academic book, but it's, I think it's pretty thoroughly cited and resourced. And, um, you know, this is not my opinion for the most part. I'm trying to help people understand the reality of, of these questions. And so I, I hope that it will be absorbed um, on all levels and that, and that it will be used as a tool. There's a lot of great information in the book um, that will help all of us in our response to trafficking. Some of it generally, uh, kind of generalized that all of us can use, and, and some of the contributions are actually pretty technical. Um, Susan French, who is a longtime federal prosecutor, prosecuted that case in Wisconsin that I referred to. Um, she addresses what makes a human trafficking crime prosecutable. So she's really speaking to investigators and prosecutors. Hey, here's the information you need. But it's also very valuable for lay readers, the general public, to say, hey, wow, this is really cool because now I understand the difficulty of prosecuting human trafficking cases. 
Well, I'm, I'm excited to have a tool at my fingertips that brings together such a broad um, community of responders to human trafficking. And I, I imagine it becoming um, almost like um, a dictionary to help people communicate um, and understand someone else's perspective and language uh, around this issue so that we can better collaborate because it does take all of us doing something. Well, I hope so. And, and uh, it, the last thing I'll say about the book is that it's actually designed, it's going to be easy for me to update it over the years as things, as things change. So it's, it's not just kind of a once and done. I'm hoping that it'll, it'll have a life and, and, and live a, a good long life and be helpful for people for years to come. And you can, you can read more uh, from John Vanek right now on his blog um, you can follow his Twitter or other social media to find out when the book is actually going to be released so that you are one of the first people to order it. And I'm sure that as we um, watch the essential abolitionist uh, community grow, that we'll invite John back on the Ending Human Trafficking podcast. So, well, I would love to join you. Thank you so much for giving us your time this morning. Well, my pleasure. Thank you very much, Dave, and thank you very much, Sandy. Well, I'll add my thanks, Sandy, and this is just another example of the uh, the power of us all working in collaboration and the partnerships we've talked about many times on the show. It's uh, it's not just John working by himself to create a book. It's a, it's a whole team of people that have come together, and really that's what um, our efforts are about too with the with the center sandy with the podcast is bringing people together in partnership to address a very very complex issue that none of us are going to handle by ourselves or any of our organizations are going to handle by ourselves and that's why we're glad that you've uh, taken the opportunity to make this show a part of your development because as we always say we are here to study the issues be a voice and make a difference and we hope that you will take uh, take our call to continue to do that and you can always reach out to us with any feedback or questions you have either on today's topic or any topic we have talked on the show or any topic you'd like us to talk about. And the best way to do that is to reach out to us uh, by email at gcwj at vanguard.edu. And that stands for the Global Center for Women and Justice here at Vanguard University. You can also reach us by phone 714 966 6360. And speaking of social media, the center has a presence on Facebook, Sandy, of course. And so uh, if you're a Facebook user and are not yet connected with us, just go ahead and search for and uh, I was going to say ending human trafficking, Sandy. We don't have a show for we don't have a page for the podcast, but we do for the center. Uh, search for the Global Center for Women and Justice at Vanguard University. You'll find us and you'll join a couple thousand other people up there in finding out what Sandy's doing, what the center's doing, and how we're continually working to end human trafficking. Have a great week, everyone, and we'll see you in two weeks. Take care.